Hey there, and welcome back to Take One, the podcast that brings you just one studious page of Talmud every day. Did I say studious? I'm sorry, I meant poor? Because in today's page, Nadarim 50, the Talmud makes a point that as a recovering academic, believe me, I've heard a lot, namely that you sort of maybe have to be poor to be considered a serious scholar of merit. Have a listen. He lifted the mat upon which he was sitting and said to the messenger, See what there is here. The place was miraculously filled with gold dinars. This demonstrated that Rabbi Yehuda could have had plenty of money if he had so desired. He explained, However, it is not amenable to me to derive benefit in this world. In connection to the above incident concerning the poverty of scholars and their potential to become wealthy through remarkable circumstances, the Gemara relates an incident. Rabbi Akiva became betrothed to the daughter of Barakar Basavua. When Barakar Basavua heard about their betrothal, he took a vow prohibiting her from eating all of his property. Despite this, she went ahead and married Rabbi Akiva. In the winter, they would sleep in a storehouse of straw, and Rabbi Akiva would gather strands of straw from her hair. He said to her, If I had the means, I would place on your head a Jerusalem of gold, which is a type of crown or popular jewel at the time. Elijah the prophet came and appeared to them as a regular person and started calling and knocking on the door. He said to them, Give me a bit of straw as my wife gave birth and I do not have anything in which to lay her. Rabbi Akiva said to his wife, See this man who does not even have straw. We should be happy with our lot as we at least have straw to sleep on. What a beautiful romantic story and what a curious assumption that scholars, Torah scholars, real serious smart people are impoverished because they don't waste their time and their life force and their energy on such petty things as making money. And if they only wished, they would have all the wealth in the world. But they are really the truly wealthy ones as they are very content with their lot uh, as, again, a former scholar struggling with poverty and many other aspects. Uh, I figured it was time to call another Torah scholar and recovering academic, our very own Corduroy Rav. Hello to you, Rabbeinu Mark Oppenheimer. Uh, Lila Tov, Reb Liel. As I sit here in my patched clothing on my threadbare rugs, uh, it is good to talk to you. It is always a pleasure, and, and as someone who has only recently left the warm bosom of academia, when you read such words of wisdom, Rabbi Yehuda said, I could have had plenty of money if I only did anything else except being a scholar. How does that make you feel? Well, I think there are at least two and maybe three ways to look at this question of the scholarly life and money. One way to look at it is, you know, what should we expect of our scholars? And I, and I think that there is certainly a belief that a scholar who's living too well must somehow be fraudulent, right? Because if, in fact, you have your head in the books all the time, how could you ever, you know, make a shot time? Yeah. You know, where's the Parnassa in that? Where's the money in that? So if you're making money, you somehow can't truly be committed to the life of the mind. So I think that that's number one, is that there's an expectation on the part of the students, on the part of the mentees, on the part of the people who support or subvent the scholar by funding the university or in the old days, the, the royal court, if they gave you a, a stipend to be a, a scholar or a learned man, 
the expectation was, well, you didn't live too well. If you were living too well, um, if you were wearing, you know, really nice finery, if you were wearing the color purple, then probably you weren't a serious scholar. So that's the first one, is that in the public perception, there really is a kind of onus, there's a disincentive for the scholar to live too well publicly. The scholar is almost forbidden from living too well. There's a, an old trope in academia of the dollar a year man, the, the professor who, because he, or sometimes she, has family money, they don't even have to draw a salary. So the university keeps them around at the proverbial a dollar a year. On the one hand, this is a kind of charming figure because this is the person who always has the nice house, uh, the nice summer place where he invites the rest of the faculty to come drink for a week in late August. But also, it's in some ways also a figure of derision that this person is not a serious scholar. A serious scholar would be poor. So that's the first one. The first one is, you know, what does the public expect? The second is really the question of whether they're right to some extent. You know, if you are a serious scholar, first of all, how would you have the time to make any money? And second, would you care for money? If what you really care about is Proust or smashing the atom or, you know, proving a new geometric theorem, why would you also want to, you know, drive a Tesla or a Jaguar? Why would you also want to wear nicely tailored clothing? There's almost something suspect about the idea that you would care about this stuff because true scholarship is supposed to be all-consuming. You know, it's supposed to be obsessive in nature. That's our idea. So I think that's the second way uh, to look at it. And then, you know, the third and final way to look at it, I would say, is the question of if you, in fact, are making money, does that somehow uh, corrupt your scholarship? Is the money somehow making your scholarship worse? And this is the idea that true scholarship isn't just a obsessive, but also in some ways ascetic, that true scholarship needs to be produced with a kind of purity in the unfurnished room, with the shades drawn, with just you and a lot of books, and that there's almost a logical impossibility of real scholarship if you're surrounded by these corrupting, decadent, you know, furs or uh, or jewels. So there's all, in all of these ways, the scholar is discouraged from being well compensated, which may say something about whether we really revere our scholars at all. If we really revere them, why are they not entitled to have, you know, a nice double-headed shower to name a particular thing I hope to acquire someday? I completely agree. And in fact, I witnessed in my short and thunderous and troubled career an, an incident even more troubling as I was able at some point to secure funds, not for myself, but for my students to actually conduct some research to which some of my colleagues said, you are hereby corrupting them for making them dependent on corporate money. To which I said, well, how, how else are they supposed to live while asking and answering the questions that matter to them? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I do think, you know, from a Jewish point of view, there is something else to be said here, which is that we do expect our teachers of Torah, the people who spend a lot of time learning Torah. Yes, yeah, some of them will learn it purely for its own sake to continue the tradition. But I always think of the Rabbanim. I think of those whose calling is to teach. And I think there is an expectation, a reasonable one, that they not be living so far above, or I would even say below, the material level of the people they're teaching, of their students, um, that they lose touch with them. You know, if you have a rabbi making a million dollars a year in a community of people who are making 75000 then probably he or she will not understand their needs and will not understand their questions and will not understand how, what Torah to give them in the way that he or she might if making only 1.2 times what they were making rather than 10 times. So I do think there is something about, you know, not 
not separating yourselves from Amcha too much, which I do want to cling to. And I think, and I think that in the professoriate, that's the noble side of this sense that they should all be poor. It's that, you know, the work of the classroom is a kind of modest, unadorned work. And if you want to be drinking your thousand dollar scotch at your house on the vineyard, maybe do it on your own time. I, I want to yes and you in this. Uh, the, the work of the professoriate is noble and unadorned, but but also a call in so many ways really to, to empathy in its purest sense, right? Because the thing that you're supposed to do is never put yourself in a position in which anything human is foreign to you. In other words, always be able to connect to the station and the position and the preoccupations of your fellow man, which is why the final story in this Gemara is so beautiful. It's the story of Rabbi Akiva. And, you know, here they are, these newlyweds. Uh, she was the daughter of a, a very wealthy man, Barkar Savoir, who said, hey, you're marrying this bum, who at that point was not yet the great Rabbi Akiva. You're hereby disinherited. And they're lying there uh, in a barn, basically, on a, on a bed of straw. Such a tender moment the Talmud delivers to us. You know, he looks at her, he removes a thread of straw from her hair and said, honey, you're so beautiful. If I could, I would buy you the most fancy, expensive jewel. And, you know, God sends the prophet Elijah not to say, hey, guys, you're on the right path. Not to say, hey, guys, you know, here's a hundred grand. Not, not to do anything like that. But basically to say, hey, you know, I'm a very poor person. Can I have some straw to remind them that some people don't even have that much to basically mm-hmm. retether them into this basic common human empathy, uh, the ability to really see and perceive the whole gamut of the human experience. And I think that's so often such a big part of our problem, and especially for people, I think, in, in these rather privileged professions like academia, that sometimes we get so entrenched in our own station that we no longer know what we know and what we don't know, you know, that we no longer remember uh, that our own viewpoint is very specific and very particular, which I think is the message of today's stuff. I think that's right. And I would also add that it's not insignificant that Elijah comes to Akiva while he's with his bride, that there is a sense in which the story is saying he is a wealthy man already in the way that counts. Um, we know, and the, the and the redactors, the Talmud by that point know, that he is enormously learned, so he's wealthy in the sense of having Torah and having closeness to God. And then, of course, also he has a bride who's you know going to be with him through his life. So this is somebody who is very, very wealthy, who is also, you know, maybe should also get some straw. So it, it, it very beautifully puts everything in perspective. The Corderoyster Rav Rabbeinu Mark Oppenheimer, thank you as ever for being our guest. I will now shuffle back to my uh, poorly heated, dimly lit hole and <laughs> to, uh, return to your hovel. <laughs> where I curl up with my dogs for warmth, and I will continue at my continue with my studies. May Hashem send you all the straw you could use. All the straw I could use. Thank you, Rev Leo. This has been Take One. If you enjoy the show, and I hope that you do, please go rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. And get your Take One t-shirts and mugs at tabletstudios.com. Each week, we will be releasing new episodes Monday through Friday, covering the entire weekly portion of Daf Yomi. Take One is a Tablet Studios production. The show is hosted by me, Leah Leibowitz, and is produced and edited by Daron Ruskay, Quinn Waller, and Ellie Blyer. 
Our team also includes Stephanie Butnick, Josh Cross, Tanya Singer, Courtney Hazlett, Robert Scaramuccia, Mark Oppenheimer, and Sarah Fedmanader. For more information, go to tabletmag.com slash take one or email us at takeone at tabletmag.com. You could find us on Twitter at takeonedoffyomi or join our Facebook group by searching for Take One Podcast. I hope we have made your day a little more Talmudic. <laughs>